0: Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and the Apple ecosystem. I'm Kirk McElhern. I'm Jeff Carlson. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. So last episode, we hit a round number milestone, and we forgot to celebrate it was episode number 50. Now, it's not been a year because we started weekly, then we moved to fortnightly. Um, But 50 is a round number that gets us halfway to 100, doesn't it? It does. It feels
1: substantial. It feels like we've been doing this for a good, healthy amount of time, and it isn't like a lot of podcasts that are like, all right, we've got a great idea, and
0: then they disappear. Three episodes later. yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. Every once in a while, I search on Overcast for podcasts for specific topics, And I see something interesting, and then I see that the last podcast episode was in 2014. I wish all of these things had a search filter to eliminate inactive podcasts, and that could be no episodes in a month, no episodes in six months, because sometimes people take a hiatus, as my co-host Doug Adams and I did on the next track. We took a few months off in January, but I really don't want to see podcasts that haven't been updated in years. Okay, so to celebrate this 51st episode, we decided that we were going to take questions from our listeners, and we solicited listeners um, aggressively on Facebook and by email, and we snuck up behind people on the street and had them give us questions. (laughs) And we have a handful of questions, and we're going to spend a half hour. Answering questions, because that's kind of what we do in our day jobs, isn't it? People ask us questions, and we answer them. We write articles and books answering questions.
1: Well, and even with this podcast, I mean, this podcast is basically answering questions. Some of it is answering questions that we have, such as when we want to delve more deeply into black-and-white photography or talk to an expert about autofocus. Some of these things that are in our previous episodes, if you've not caught up on those, you can always go back. Our episodes, we try to have evergreen content, so I'm just going to tout ourselves there for a minute.
0: You shouldn't have told them that some of the reason why we invite some of these people on the podcast is because we want to learn from them. Oh, no, no, no. We're just checking them to make sure they're (laughs) fine. (laughs) Learning is
1: immensely important with photography. And I think something that that I've learned just doing this podcast, yes, Kirk and I both know a lot about photography, but we're always learning. We're always developing new skills. And I mean, that's really kind of the point of photography. You're going out and you're doing something new every single time. That's that's what I love. So one of our listeners on Facebook, and by the way, if you've not joined our Photoactive Facebook group, please do. That's where we have discussions. We share photos and such. Um, one of them said, so you're doing a QA and a episode. And does that mean you're out of ideas? <laughs> and of course, I said yes because we've covered everything in photography. Everything, everything, and yes. uh, yeah, we're we're, left. we're we're wrapping it up. It's it's all good now.
0: No, that's and not we're the retiring case. after this episode. And <laughs> we're <laughs> retiring after this episode. In fact, I'm retired now. Yes, uh, um, actually, we have a list. I'm looking. It's about fifty topics that we want to cover in the future. Yeah. Well, we started this list before we launched the podcast, and every once in a while we add more topics to it. And we've covered some of them in the list that need to be deleted. But just to give an idea, we want to do something about long exposures. We want to do something about white balance, Um, the merits of a smaller camera as opposed to a big, complicated camera, or what gear to take on vacation. We kind of discussed that, I think, in passing once. Um, In but passing we have, once. There, there's always more that can be said about all yes, these things. Yes, but we have a huge list of topics. So fear yeah. not. If you're a regular, committed listener, we will be here for the long haul. And you can always
1: ask more questions because we are happy to answer them. Like, we are. which one should we start with?
0: Well, let's start with the one at the top of the – well, actually, let's give them uh, an update on the Panorama episode because you wanted to mention a PDF – That would give more information.
1: Rick LePage, who we talked to earlier uh, about printing, we'll put links in the show notes to that episode, he had some great feedback on our panorama episode and also pointed out something that I actually had in my notes and forgot to mention. So we both know a photographer named Hudson Henry, who is based out of Portland, Oregon, and he has written a book called Simple Panoramas, and it's available as a PDF has a really great overview of how to get started shooting panoramas. And then Hudson also has a more advanced panorama course, uh, which I highly recommend checking out, and I would love to get him on the show to sort of go into that next level of panorama shooting that we just only had time to touch on briefly. So the point of me bringing this up is Rick mentioned that the simple panorama PDF is available for free to anybody who signs up for their mailing list. And he said he would be more than happy to make it free to all the Photoactive listeners, since this is also a podcast that he listens to regularly. So there will be a link in the show notes. You wanna go and download that. Uh, I saw an early
0: version of it before this got published. It's great information. And thanks, Rick, for sharing that with us. Okay, so the first question we have, and this is one that I see in forums often. Should photographers share whether or not a photo they've taken and posted somewhere publicly has been edited and to what extent? Now, my gut feeling is, no, what does it matter? Who cares? You're showing a finished work to someone. You don't, if you're making an oil painting, you don't have to tell people what it was like before you put any paint on the canvas. (laughs) But some people do want to know about how you edit. Now, of course, this can take us down the rabbit hole. Uh, I find it extremely useless when someone says, Oh, I shot this photo at, at ISO 200 f2.8 and 1 1000th of a second. I couldn't care less how you shot it. It doesn't, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to set those settings on my camera and take a picture that's exactly the same. The only time that's useful is, let's say, someone's done a long exposure or they're playing with depth of field. You might want to know that kind of thing. But the question of whether something has been edited or not. I I don't see the point. What about you?
1: I do find that information somewhat useful because sometimes when you're looking at something you want to know if it is a long exposure, you want to know if they were being deliberate about their depth of field. You see that they have a uh you know, a real wide open aperture. Um so like that's something that I will I will glance at, but in terms of of editing, you know, the whole point is to have a finished piece of artwork basically. And I think nowadays there are really no images that aren't edited in some way. And as you said, there's a huge scope of what that can mean. But in terms of you know that, that end result, unless you're doing something that's specifically journalistic, where it has to be a, an accurate record of something that happened, and we've seen lots of photo competitions where you have... An amazing shot, and it turns out that the photographer did some compositing. Uh, There's a picture. I'll see if I can find it for the show notes by Peter Lick, who he obviously composited this this amazing picture of like the big full moon against. I want to say it's a it's a cliffside. It's an amazing image, but. People were quick to point out that the lighting didn't match, the shadows didn't match. There's no way he could have gotten that sort of depth of field. And part of that point was, okay, this is obviously something that's been really Photoshopped. But for someone who wants that on their wall, someone who wants to have that as the backdrop of their screensaver, I guess.
0: But even as a work of art, does it matter? Did anyone ask whether Cezanne erased the original lines in one of his drawings or say, did you use a 3B (laughs) pencil for this or a 2H? Um, This doesn't matter. Now, as you say, for news photos, it does. But don't think that news photos aren't edited. They're edited for white balance and contrast and exposure. They may be cropped. And, you know, cropping does a great deal um, to focus the eye on certain things and eliminate other things. Uh, Let's say you're... Taking a photo of the Soviet Central Committee in 1959, and you crop out the guy in the right because he's been killed since then, and that photo makes it look like he wasn't there, and that's the kind of thing that you know Winston Smith did in his job. Yeah, but that's news photos, and and news photos have a, a duty to the truth. We don't have any duty to the truth if we're creating something that we consider artistic. We can do what we want. This is something that
1: comes up a lot
0: in landscape
1: photography, particularly, because there are all sorts of things you can do to make a landscape photo better. And I will admit, I I do them all the time, because sometimes what you are seeing or what the camera sees can be kind of a, you know, moderately bland sky, for example. Well, if you can go in there, you push the clarity a little bit, you push the saturation. You can create a linear gradient that darkens the sky a bit. That sort of thing ends up giving you a better image overall. And it doesn't really matter that the sunset that day was just okay if you can bring out a lot of really great detail. Are you happy with the end result? I would hope so. My personal preference is there are also a lot of photos that are way, way over-edited. And you can usually tell. Like like the saturation is just off the charts or... Or they have
0: that HDR crunchiness.
1: They have the HDR crunchiness. Or even, even some HDRs I've noticed just barely go over the line. You can see like a lot of little haloing around objects. Uh, and those are things that I think because I've been doing this for a while, I'm more sensitive to. A lot of people who
0: might not want... But some people like that in a Facebook forum not long ago, yes. someone posted one of those photos, and it was like it was like the magical mystery tour with bright colors and halos and and relief around the clouds and everything and people were commenting, and the guy said, "But I like this, so people can do what they want. Just yes. remember the photo that your camera takes is not reality, so it 's already edited by your photo sensor or the film." Mm-hmm. And then when you put it onto your computer or scan it or develop it or whatever, it's being, again, edited in certain ways by the software. You can't take a raw image and present it as is because it won't look right. Uh, A JPEG that's made in your camera is edited in certain ways. Um, Recently... Uh, if you go to my Instagram page, uh there's a link in the show notes. You'll see that I'm doing a lot of these flower photos against black backgrounds. So and many
1: beautiful flowers.
0: They're wonderful, aren't they? they um are. but but what I find is it, so I shoot JPEG and RAW and when I look at the JPEG, there's certain colors that come out. Fujifilm cameras, you know, the colors are really special. And those colors tend to match the flowers, at least when it's orange and yellow, a lot more. Purples, they don't do very well. But when I put the raw file on my computer, those colors are all gone. And I have to work to get those colors back to what the real colors are. And I do this in my office with the flower right next to my computer. And I'm trying to match the color as much as possible. But even if I don't, does it matter if I've changed the color of that sunflower a little bit to make it more orange or less orange? I'm gonna come to your house and I'm gonna
1: say, that was not historically accurate to the day that you (laughs) shot that. I have a great example of this. Fortunately, I don't remember the photographer's name, which is good because I'm gonna disparage him, sorry. Uh, When my wife and I were in Hawaii this past year, we went to a gallery and there was a photographer who shoots a lot of underwater photography, really stunning stuff. And one of the shots was a beach at night, and so you see the milky way in the background and in the foreground is a sea turtle on the sand and it's a really interesting composition the problem is the sea turtle is not really in very sharp focus and you can tell that this was a long exposure because it had that sort of uh, yellowish tinge that sometimes comes out when you have just available light sneaking it over a long exposure and I think if you were to look at this as like a three-inch by five-inch card, it looks amazing. But they had it blown up to I don't know, like five feet tall by three feet wide, and immediately my brain just said, "Oh, like the the main focus of <laughs> focus, ha The main focus of the image is out of focus, and I couldn't imagine myself putting." a photo like that up for sale. And yet, I saw it in multiple galleries. People buy it, people like it, and they don't really often care about some of those details. So that's the other part of it, too. If, if somebody likes it, and there's something, you know, technically,
0: quote unquote, wrong with it, uh, that's fine, because this is all art. Okay, uh, we've almost gotten to the break, so let's do a question <laughs> where we can give a really short answer. We've only done one question, and we're already 15 minutes in. Um, you were mentioning before the show that a lot of landscape photographers are no longer sharing geotagging information in their photos. Oh, and this yes. raises a question. If you're taking photos of a very beautiful area, should you include that information or say where it is on Instagram, et cetera? Um there, there are cases right now where people are overrunning certain areas because they look nice. A few months ago, I saw an article. might have been in The Guardian. I'll try and find it if I can. It'll be in the show notes. And it was about tourists going to these sites that are very popular on Instagram. And there was a photo of some person like at the edge of this tongue of rock that was sticking out over a valley. And it was like this person's out there in the wild and you can hear the wind blowing and the you can smell the grass. And then there was a photo from about 100 yards back and you saw the line of people waiting to pose in that exact spot. Um... I'm just going to say don't share the geotag information in your photos. I'll even go further. Don't share the geotag information in any photos you've taken at home.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I mean, originally the idea was someone finds a good spot, and if you were savvy enough to see where it was, then you could go there. But I think because Instagram has become so big and so many people are using it, it's it's just leading to this this sort of chaos. For example, When we were in Montana recently, we went to uh, just over the border into Idaho, and I took some pictures in that area of uh, this beautiful farm that had a barn and a silo and trees.
0: You should put that photo in the show notes. I will put that photo in the show
1: notes. And instead of tagging that specific location, I just tagged the town that was nearby. So you know that it was that the photo was shot near Moye Springs, Idaho, but that's all you really need to know. Because if you want to go and find that spot, you absolutely can go drive around, and I'm sure you would find the spot. And uh, you know it's private land, but you can shoot from the road, whatever. But you know there are people living there. They don't need a whole bunch of people to just show up right there.
0: I've got a better idea. Use an app like how to geo, which we talked about in a previous episode, there'll be a link in the show notes, or any other app where you can change the geotagging information and set it in another country someplace, or send everyone to Area 51, or someplace that is hundreds or thousands of miles away.
1: All of my photos are shot in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay, let's take a break. Okay, we've got a question about the Photos app and the Photos library. Um, if you use iCloud Photos library, you've got all your photos on a device, presumably a Mac or an iPad or an iPhone, plus in the cloud. And we've got a question about someone who's got about 40,000 images and wants to know how to back them up. Now, this is really kind of complicated because this is a walled silo, um, Once your photos are in Photos, you can't really get them out easily. You can export all your finished photos, but you can't go back and re-edit them if you've done that. Um, I think the first thing is to make sure you have a backup of your photos library, then another backup, then a third backup, because you're not (laughs) going to get those photos back. Um, A good idea is to have one local, to use a cloud service if you can. Uh, Don't consider that iCloud is a backup. It's not meant to be. Uh, However, if you have, let's say, two Macs, uh, set them both to download all your photos to the Mac if you have enough storage space, because then you'll have all the photos on both of them. The problem is, again, you can export the finished photos, you can export the originals, but you can't export the photos with all the edits. You can't export the albums. Like in the app previously known as iTunes, you could export a playlist, and it would save an XML file with the names of all the tracks. You could import it into the app, and if you have the same files, you get the same playlist. You can't do that in the Photos app.
1: You mentioned having two Macs to cover this, and that's something that I do just by way of example. So my Photos library is on my MacBook Pro, but my MacBook Pro, even though it has a terabyte of storage. Uh, that storage gets filled up because we do so much photo stuff. I have photos set to optimize the local library. And what that means is everything that gets uploaded to iCloud Photos and a lot of the images on the laptop are deleted, but they're replaced by little thumbnails. And so if you need one of those images that's been deleted, it just gets downloaded automatically. Well, that's obviously not a good solution if that were my only copy of my photos. But of course, that will never be my only copy of my photos. And so on my uh, Mac mini that I have in my home office, that's connected to a big hard drive. And that's set to make sure that everything is downloaded and stored locally. Now, I understand that not everybody's going to have you know, that sort of setup. But you need to make sure you have at least one full copy of your Photos library.
0: And the, and the entire library, not just exporting the photos, because you want that, you want the originals, you want the edit points, you want the final photos, and you want the albums.
1: Yeah. And one nice thing in this situation is that Photos wants everything to be in, in one library file. It's a container on your Mac. And so everything gets stored there. It's, it, it's essentially a folder that looks like a file. And so the advantage here is everything is there. So you can set a backup of your entire hard drive, as you should already. So that will be a backup there. But you can also, if you have another external hard drive, you can just drag that container over onto your external hard drive and make manual backups, or you can automate that process so that you have that other backup.
0: Now, the problem of this single file, or what looks like a file, it's actually called a package, mm-hmm. um, is that if you've changed two photos, or one photo, or you've changed the exposure on one photo in the library, uh, you will have to copy the entire thing. So if you've got 500 gigabytes, you're going to take the time to copy it again. But it's worth it. Buy a cheap external hard drive. Um, you can get a cheap external SSD, uh, relatively under 100 bucks for a 500 gigabyte SSD these days. Uh, so that's a lot quicker to copy, but get something and make sure you have at least one copy that's not on a computer and not in the cloud. I think for this person who's asking, I would say they're making things just a
1: little bit too difficult by splitting out the the originals from the camera in one place. I mean that's that's still a, a decent idea, but it divides your edits from your images, and I think that just that lies in madness.
0: Okay, we have a question which I consider quite interesting personally. What can we do with our street photos? Can we submit them to shows or magazines if there are recognizable people in them or almost recognizable people? Now, this is really interesting, and and the reason that I'm aware of this issue is that I lived in France um, for a very long time, and I moved to the UK in 2013. And a couple of years before I moved the French introduced a law that gave everyone what they call a droit à l'image, right to your own image, that no one can use your image without your permission. Essentially, if you're doing street photography in France and you want to do anything with the photos, you're breaking the law. And this would have When you look back at the great street photographers, you think of Cartier Bresson, you think of Joel Meyerowitz and uh, Gary Winogrand and people like that, You know, going around in the street, click, 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 and getting all these great photos. A lot of that would be illegal right now in various countries. Now, it depends on the country, and I'll put a few links um, in the show notes. Uh, In some places, you can shoot anything of anyone and that people have no expectation of privacy when they're in public places. In others, like in France, People own their images and how dare you take a photo of me and try to sell it um, because then someone could sue you for some of the proceeds. Um, One of the exceptions is news photos. If a photo, I don't know, something has happened and there is a photographer taking a picture of people in the street around an event or, say, a political rally or something like that, um, then you no longer have rights because this is a news event, a newsworthy event. It's important. I'm kind of getting annoyed by street photography because, you know, I look at a little bit on Instagram and it's generally find an interesting wall and wait for someone to walk by. I know I'm exaggerating a little bit. And if you do street photography, don't take it personally. But how many times can you find an interesting wall and wait for someone to walk by? It's just not that interesting. And then you look at the great street photographers who catch expressions and contrast between different people. And then you think... Well, is that something that we should be doing today? We're violating people's privacy in a way. I
1: think a lot of it also has to do with intent. Intent to use. I'll do the default here and say we're not lawyers, and so, of course, don't trust this as, as any sort of legal advice. We're just doing common sense advice. Sometimes it depends on how you're going to use the image. Sometimes it depends on where you are. So for example, if I'm in Seattle, and I'm at Pike Place Market, where I've done some workshops and such, that is such a tourist heavy place, I don't think there's any expectation of privacy.
0: I'm frowning here, I kind of think, why does someone have the right to take my picture? It's a question of, I mean, people do it, but I I think it's not an expectation of privacy. But it's an expectation of owning the right to my image. I kind of lean in that direction.
1: Okay, that's fair. What I'm picturing here is more perhaps
0: crowd-focused or or. Let or, me give a better example. Groups. Okay. Let me give a better example. I've been to Stonehenge twice since I've been in the UK. Now, if I'm taking a picture of the stones in Stonehenge, it's not a problem if there's people in the picture. I try to take pictures without the people in them because it's more interesting. but it's Harder to do. <laughs> well, it is, but you can clone them out or if you get the right angle, but there, I would say there's not an expectation of privacy whereas a market a public market in a town where people just may be walking to work, or that to me is a little bit different a tourist site um it it's another story.
1: The other thing that I was leading up to is if you are shooting just one person like a street musician or something, uh I will always ask permission first yes. and, and and you know and oftentimes people will be fine with it. I know that, that there are a lot of street photographers who they'll just go up to somebody and say, hey, you look really photogenic. May I take your portrait? Can I take a picture of you? And I think in most cases, people are like, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, sometimes they'll say no, and then you you respect that and, and move on. So if it's in a situation where you can ask permission, I think it is a good idea to ask permission. And then there's also the question of use. So if you are going to go and take a picture of that uh, street musician, for example, and then you're going to go and sell that to a magazine, well, that's different because the magazine will probably want a model release from that person because it is a recognizable person.
0: And the same is the case for anything that's going to be used in an advertisement, Yes, um, definitely. That's totally verboten. You just can't take pictures of people for advertisements um, because it's it's even different from selling to a magazine or, say, entering into a contest. Um, it's using someone's image to sell a product without their permission.
1: Exactly. So I think things are a little, a little more squishy in terms of just sharing something on Instagram unless, you know, if you are a, quote, unquote, Instagram influencer and you're basically making your living, well. You know, that, I think, also goes over the line.
0: I'm going to link in the show notes to a Wikipedia page called Photography in the Law, and it goes through different countries. Here's just one example. In Hungary in 2014, they restated what had been normal practice, namely that a person had the right to refuse being photographed. However, implied consent exists. It is not illegal to photograph a person who does not actively object. But what if you photograph the person and then they say, hey, why did you take a picture of me? Then you get into this gray area. Okay, I can delete it. But did you really delete it? Did you have it on two SD cards? Or uh, I just find yeah. that you better just check the laws in the country you live in.
1: Well, and also I think, like, don't be a jerk. Yeah.
0: You know, if, if a, somebody asks you to good, delete it,
1: yeah. then then do it. Um, another thing that, that annoys me are photographers who take pictures of homeless people because they are easy photo targets. And I think there's... I think that there's a place for that. I think, um, especially if we're talking editorial, we're talking news. You know, when when the, the the homelessness is the the issue or the the editorial point that you're trying to get across. But so many uh, street photographers just take pictures of homeless people because, I mean, a they tend to look interesting because um, you know they contrast. They they contrast exactly. But at the same time, those photographers often are not taking a picture for that person. They're not trying to get a picture of that person. They're just trying to get a picture of something that looks different. And because it's been done so much, I think it's overdone. And it's it's just rude. So, you know, number one, and this applies, frankly, anywhere you're shooting, don't be a jerk. Be a good person.
0: I like that. We should put that as our motto for the photoactive rules for appropriate photography or something now it, the one thing to note is that you don't have to ask the permission of cats so you can take all the cat photos you want even if it's not your cat
1: <laughs> um actually you do have to ask the permission of the cats they just haven't yet sprung their uh uh wrath upon you <laughs> yes
0: okay last question because we're running long um how do you use Instagram? Do you use it for your computers? And how do you use it for business and pleasure? This is an easy one to answer. We're going to put a link in the show notes to an episode we did about how we use Instagram. And in 30 minutes, you will know everything about it. <laughs> everything, everything. Everything. Okay, let's move on to our snapshots. So, Jeff, what have you got
1: this week? So, I have an app. The app is called Gemini Photos. It's for iPad or iPhone. And it's a tool that lets you help identify duplicates it helps you identify uh, screenshots basically a way to clean out your photos library without just ponderously going through every single photo when you open it it will read through your photos library and it'll pick out things that are similar so that can be actual duplicates perhaps you have like two different sizes of photos in your library because you shared one to instagram that was a smaller resolution for example or um you shot a bunch in a burst, and you don't necessarily need all those, but you n- never went back and got rid of the ones that you didn't want. Um, so it's, it's not like an automated tool that will just clean up everything for you, but it goes several steps into helping you clean up your library and get rid of, say, you know, receipts that you shot that it's regarding as, as, as text for example. The app is Gemini Photos. Uh, It's free. However, it has limited use and then it has a subscription model. You can do a monthly or a yearly, whatever. So, Kirk, what do you have this week?
0: Well, as you mentioned earlier, I've been taking a lot of photos of flowers and you can go to my Instagram and see what I've been doing. Um, I first... Uh, mentioned this a few episodes ago, and explained how I set up a black cloth to the left of my computer, get getting light from the window. So I want to share another tool that I use to do this. It's called a flower frog. Have you ever heard of it? Flower frog? Like
1: F-R-O-G? Yes, a flower I've frog. I've never heard of this. A
0: flower frog is a small, heavy weight with spikes sticking up from it. And what you do is you stick the ends of the flowers onto the spikes. Ah. And this way, you don't need to put a flower in a vase, you can put it exactly the angle you want, and you're just shooting the top of the flower, you're not shooting the flower frog, which is very heavy, so it can hold heavy frogs. Um, If you cut off a stem on an angle, then you can put the stem down onto the frog on an angle, so you can get a flower coming in, say, 45 degrees. Uh, You can put multiple flowers on a flower frog, or you can have multiple flower frogs if you want to make an arrangement. Uh, this is something that's used for ikebana, which is Japanese flower arrangement. Um, but if you do want to shoot flowers, and particularly in a studio environment like I've been doing, this is the best thing uh, because you just don't have to worry about keeping the flowers in the right place. They will just stay there.
1: So explain to me how the spikes work. Are, they, are there like lots of little tiny ones? I mean, does this work for,
0: for thin-stemmed flowers as well as thicker-stemmed flowers? It doesn't work that well for thin-stemmed flowers, but there are ways that you can manage to stick them in. So, for example, let's say you have a very thin flower. You could take a small twig, wrap the flower to the twig using what's called florist's wire, which is a very thin green wire that will hold them together, then put the twig into the flower frog, and that will hold it. Ah,
1: gotcha. All of the out-of-frame super tricks that uh, make this happen.
0: Cool. Yes, and and you don't even tell anyone that you've done this. And this goes back to our first question, should you tell people that you've tricked things or cheated things? And and some of these flowers I've shot in vases, um, and some of them in small teacups that I have. I have a very big collection of small teacups. But the ones that I like most now are just the flower itself against the black background. And depending on the type of flower and the shape, sometimes I'll put it straight, sometimes on an angle. Nice. So flower frogs, they're not very expensive. You can get one for $12, $13. Um, If you do want to shoot anything like flowers, uh, this is what you need.
1: And remember, don't geotag your flowers.
0: Yes, good point. I will not do that because then people will find where I live. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the m. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app.